0: Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory and again we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God and we're looking at Corinthians. We're in, uh, chapter 14 and we actually, I'm not sure we finished up the last couple of verses of chapter 13. But, uh, I was going to talk, uh, uh, I had an interest at least during this week to talk to you about materialism and because there's a lot of information wandering around in uh, social media about materialism, whether materialism is good or bad, and what what exactly is materialism. But we'll save that. But uh, I will touch on just a brief idea of materialism because it will relate to our study of Corinthians. And materialism is, uh, at least coming out of the scientific community, they talk about it as... Uh, uh, if I do not see it uh, it does not exist. in other words, it's the material world that they're dealing with you know Carl Sagan uh, talks about the cosmos and uh he sees everything uh and you have to observe it if you can't see it, it doesn't exist or perceive it because obviously there are a lot of things we can't see uh microbes we can't see uh Atoms, unless of course we put them under electron microscopes and then we're depending upon, uh, that instrumentality to see them. But the reality is, is how do we know there isn't something that looks even at smaller and smaller issues? The whole issue of quantum and uh, quantum mechanics, it runs, starts running amok into what almost becomes a spiritual realm because there is a connection between this thing and that thing in the universe and we can't quite see how that connection is made especially when you're seeing results of that connection in people way apart from each other even people in space to people on earth there seems to be some sort of connection and then the whole realm of music what what's music all about we hear these sounds and and, and it becomes almost universal that your sounds have an effect on the actual physical existence of the body beyond simply vibration. So what is that all about? And then you go back to the story of creation, which I've also been studying a lot this uh, last couple of weeks as we're getting uh, ready to present uh, commentaries on a lot of what is traveling through the social media. And looking at Genesis and the idea of in the beginning that God spoke and breathed upon the waters and things came into existence and everything in the material world is vibrating. Exactly how is it that an atom even holds itself together, this massive amount of energy that is in a single atom, holding itself together just based on frequency? And then you get into string theory and all these other kinds of theories, but materialism, this whole idea that nothing exists unless I can perceive it, I can see it, I can touch it, I can smell it, and somehow or other perceive it through your senses, even magnified, is really non-scientific. Because it's saying because I don't see it, it doesn't exist. It's, it's the negative. You know, I, I never heard that, so it's not true. Because I never heard it. I did, I never, I never was taught it, so therefore it's outside of the realm of my reality, because in my reality I have a degree of knowledge. And of course in looking at Corinthians, we've been looking at it from a kingdom point of view, and a lot of people have never looked at Corinthians from a kingdom point of view. They have a preconceived notion that they learned as a child as to what the Bible is all about and what they think the Bible is all about. And anything that is to the contrary to that is attacking their reality. The problem is their reality is not real. It's a delusion. Delusional realities should be challenged. Maybe not attacked, but they should be challenged. And they are challenged by reality constantly. But when we push away reality because it challenges our delusion, we plummet ourselves into darkness. And there are other things that we do not see. It sets us up for all those consequences of not eating of the tree of life and deciding to eat of the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge and the tree of life are there in our individual gardens. They're supposed to both be there. The problem with the tree of knowledge is that it is not to be the source. Materialism, in essence, is cutting down the tree of life. It's saying the tree of life does not exist because I don't see it. And you don't see it because you're not willing to look at it. You see, that's why Adam and Eve fled the garden is that they could not bear to see the tree of life the, that lights up and shows you the truth. That's why they were hiding right away in the metaphor of the story. They're hiding from God when he comes because they now see that they have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that makes the tree of life something to hide from. You have to stop hiding. Repenting is being willing to see the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It is willing to see and eat of the tree of life. It is willing to receive the message of the Holy Spirit. People want to be healed all the time. The woman uh, who was reaching out to touch the garment of Jesus Christ wanted to be healed for many, many years, spent everything she had to be healed. But when she was willing to see the truth, receive the Holy Spirit, then healing could come in. If you're not willing to see the truth about yourself and your sin and your error and your failing, you will receive the healing of the Holy Spirit. You cannot receive one without receiving the other. And so that's why the world is in such a state today is because it won't receive that healing. It won't see the truth about itself. The people of the world deny the truth and cling to the delusion. And so, you know, when we're going through Corinthians, we're pointing out what a lot of people have not been willing to see. And so I've I've done a lot of changes. Even this morning, I was up early again and did a lot of changing uh, we have an index page now for Corinthians. And what I've done is, you know, the like I say, the chapters are put in by other people. This was actually just a letter to the saints in Corinth. And therefore, it was also to the people of Corinth. Uh, both those people sitting down in the free assemblies in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in early Christianity. But also to the people who were not. But the letter was written kind of to the saints. And uh, the saints are who? You know, I mean, the Pope hadn't been canonizing saints. So who are these saints? What is a saint? And so I expanded our page on what a saint is so that you can understand a saint is someone who is separate. And Christ told his disciples who were studying to be the ministers of the kingdom, he was going to take the kingdom away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the Zealots, he was going to take it away from them and appoint it to somebody who would bear fruit. In order to, for them to receive that appointment, they had to give up everything they had as individuals and own all things common. That's not for the general population. That's for the ones that are to be separate from the world. Everybody can't be separate from the world Until the world falls apart. It's just because that's. it's like the Levites. The Levites were called out. The apostles were called out. That's what the word church really means. It doesn't mean a building. It doesn't mean an assembly. It means the called out. And they were called out to be separate. To go back in amongst the people and rightly divide the bread from house to house and teach them the way of Jesus Christ which was really the way of Moses, which was really the way of Abraham, which was the way of Seth and the way of uh, Abel. But it was not the way of Cain. The way of Cain was different. Most of the world has gone the way of Cain. They don't live by faith, hope, and charity. They live by force, fear, and violence. They compel the offerings of their neighbors to provide them with a full table of benefits. That's contrary to what Christ was teaching. Not contrary to what the Pharisees were doing at the time of Jesus Christ. But it was contrary to the ways of Moses. Who wanted people to also love their neighbor as themselves. Even give drink to their enemy. So the same theme has traveled through the Bible from the beginning to the end and that theme of the Bible has been uh, to set men free from the bondage of the world so that they might live as free souls under God, the God of heaven, rather than the God's many of the world. That's what the Bible is trying to teach us. And there's been a lot of people fiddling and playing fast and loose with the translations and set your thinking that the Bible is talking about stoning people to death and and uh, counting days and and uh, doing all these different rituals and performances and then somehow that pleases God. What? pleases God is that you repent and seek the righteousness of God in all your relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your neighbor, and even with your enemy. And that's where God was always been trying to take you. But the world has been trying to take you in another direction. So repenting is changing the way you think. So how do we change the way you think? Well, I have to tell you the truth. I'm not trying to attack your delusion. I'm trying to impart to you the truth. The truth of the gospel of the kingdom. So if we uh look at uh chapter uh, 13, because we were in chapter 13. It's a pretty brief chapter. It's not very long. It's the chapter on charity. Uh, like I said, I'm not sure whether we've got the last few verses of that, but verse 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And that's an interesting point that we should take a, a look at. I shall know as I am known. This is about seeing yourself as you really are It's and allowing God to see your heart. Stop hiding from God and let His light come in and you're going to be known but you're also going to know yourself but then you come face to face with the truth and a lot of people don't want to do that but you're addicted to a lie so it's then very important that you see the truth about yourself. And it's very hard to do that in this world. The world's trying to keep your mind going, the TV and the radio and the media and all the other things pulling on you that you're trying to make a living. To be still and know who you are and what is in you and what you have done and what you haven't done and what you have failed to do and what you continue to fail to do is very important. People go to church to get a good feeling. They don't go to church to hear the truth. Very few do. And then there always seems to be this wall where they all of a sudden receive a truth. They cannot go beyond that point. And if you don't go beyond that point eventually to to get around that wall, get over that wall, dissolve that wall, and the ways to do that is humility and forgiveness and service to others, sacrifice All these things are a part of dissolving that wall that keeps you from continuing your journey towards the kingdom. And you will try to demonize people. Me or somebody else who tells you the truth. They're the bad guys. Because they tell you the truth. And the the Bible tells you about that. Am am I the bad guy because I tell you the truth? No. it, It doesn't work that way. So... Knowing yourself is important, being still and knowing, and so I, you know, I point to our meditation pages so you learn a little bit about meditation. There's good meditation, bad meditation, but meditation is just an exercise. There's good and bad exercises, but it's a mental exercise helping you to be still. But the knowing that has to do with whether you're willing to see the whole truth. And in verse 13, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity. Because he knows himself. Now, faith, hope, and charity can live in you. Be a part of you. You can become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's great power in that. But, of course, that's not something we're looking for, is great power. Because humility is another way to dissolve those walls that keep us from progressing towards the kingdom. But he says, these three things, the greatest of these is charity. Why? Why? Charity is actually the word love. We talked about that earlier. He talks about it. Though I give all my possessions to the poor and I have not charity. Well, how in the world could you give all your possessions to the poor and not have charity? Because charity is more than just giving stuff away. Charity is is love. It's It's doing it in a particular attitude. And I cannot make you have that. You cannot make yourself... To really have that attitude it's a mutual thing between you and the holy spirit and he and we talked about you know charity never faileth and uh that it it, it is long suffering but charity itself giving stuff away to other people actually comes from the word charis which has to do with the word grace where you show grace to other people they're not deserving of your gifts or your help But you give it anyway. You give it because the Holy Spirit has put it upon your heart to give that love, to shine that love. And you give it with patience and long-suffering. And that breaks down that wall. You don't break down that wall. You break down that wall because you lay down your life daily. For somebody else, not just those that can love you, but those that are far away. And that's easily done in a network of tens, hundreds, and thousands, which is why Christ commanded his disciples to make the people sit down in those tens, hundreds, and thousands. And, of course, that's exactly what the people at Corinth were doing. They were taking care of all the social welfare of their society through faith, hope, and charity. And... That put them apart from the world in an, at least one way, because they were not eating at the table of men who called themselves benefactors but exercised authority one over the other, because that table was a snare. And, uh, it, and if we coveted those benefits, those wages of unrighteousness provided by men who exercised authority, who exercised force, if we coveted those benefits, if we desired those benefits, and we said, you know, I had to pay in. I want those benefits even though the system is bankrupt. If we insist upon that, we build the wall between us and the tree of life. So we don't want to do that. <laughs> that building that wall is bad. <laughs> Tearing down that wall... With righteousness is good. And that's what seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness is all about. It's learning that process of learning to live by faith, hope, and charity. And the first thing you have to do is sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and remain faithful to that ten as you would be faithful to God. Because you want the presence of God to come within you. And you do that by the process of repentance, which is more easily done, almost, I, I can't even imagine it not being done, unless you are interacting with other people. And other in other parts of creation, we're supposed to be dressing and keeping creation. Uh, because if we are to have dominion, we need to do the job of someone who has dominion. The world will claim dominion and they will try to do that job but they will bring in ravenous wolves to eat out your substance and of course we have out here on the desert the fish and wildlife have brought in wolves and we hear them in the distance we've had some come onto the place but uh now we seem to be holding them at bay through the power of the Holy Spirit so <laughs> uh, that's uh But they are actually decimating. They're not dressing and keeping. They're decimating. They deny it. But, uh, I mean, there are almost no deer. Deer hunters said in our valley and the next valley over and in the mountains, where everybody goes deer hunting this last year, they said they couldn't find any deer. They hardly saw a buck. There's almost no deer. Normally, we have 15 to 20 deer coming in our yards and trying to eat our grapes and We have the gates open and no deer. The wolves are eating them all. The wolves and the cougars. We're not supposed to hunt cougars with dogs anymore. That's another thing they brought in. And so therefore the cougars are, there's there's probably thousands of them out there. And I believe there's a lot more wolves than they know or realize. And they're just decimating the deer herd. So they're not dressing and keeping it. They've created an imbalance because they took man out of... The natural order of things, but they deny this. Uh, they say that it's poachers, and yet you know i don't know any poachers. I know a lot of people i don't hardly really, I'm sure there's somebody out there poaching, but no way on earth, but they're just in denial they won't admit that they're wrong. You can see this in lots of areas of the world, in the governments of the world, in the politicians, and in the And the voters of the world going out there, they, there seems to be larger and larger groups that are in total denial of what is obviously basic facts and information. They don't even want to hear facts. Now this is on both sides, you know, I'm not, but it's very clear that this denial of the truth is becoming more and more pervasive throughout the world. You know, I mean, was the UN just elected um uh, Venezuela to the human rights um whatever they call it border or whatever in the United nations uh Venezuela is in constant violation of human rights and yet they're now on the u n board to decide who is in violation of human rights it it just it's just unconscionable how how can they even do this but that's That's the way it is. You start down this road away from the truth. If you deny the truth about yourself, you will go into a deeper and deeper, darker abyss. So anyway, enough with uh, chapter thirteen. We'll get into chapter fourteen now, and we'll see. Uh, That's a much longer chapter. And uh, what I've done is I've divided almost every paragraph off with a a word heading. To kind of help you navigate around, and that I the other day I was actually thinking of one verse, and I was actually meaning uh, I was should have been in another chapter because I've been looking so closely. I have to step back once in a while, so I put these word headings in to help you find your way. And so that's what we'll do is we'll start in verses uh, uh, one of chapter fourteen when we return to keys to the kingdom. Be right back. So welcome back to Keith the Kingdom. So in chapter 14, we start right off with follow after charity. Why? Because this is all part of the same letter. It's not a separate chapter. You know, the chapter on charity was this 13, and then he's continuing that same statement. Why is that important? Because when you start dividing up things too much, then they can divide and conquer you by getting you to focus on... One particular verse over another particular verse. And they will create whole doctrines with one or two verses. And then they, they alter translations by, you know, like we've shown where they take one word and they translate it ten different ways or they take four or five different Greek words and they translate it all into the same English word. You're going to open up a door to deception. The only way to really understand the Bible is to read it with the Holy Spirit. If you don't, you'll miss something. You're, because you're, the, reading the Bible is eating of the tree of knowledge. If you don't eat of the tree of life and depend upon the Holy Spirit for that interpretation, Then you're depending upon private interpretation, individual interpretation of your particular knowledge of good and evil and right and wrong and what the Bible says. And that's full of vanity. And you cannot, the vanity and humility do not mix. They are not in the same place. And that one does not bring spiritual awakening. And I'll let you figure out which one. So, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. Everybody, you know, the prosperity gospel wants physical gifts. I want a new car. I want a nice house. I want this, that, that. No, you want spiritual gifts. And then he goes and says, but rather that ye may prophesy. Now, prophesy, that means tell the future, right? No, not necessarily. (laughs) The word prophesy... In in this case is profetio, uh, and uh, it's, uh, actually it actually comes from a word that means interpret or interpreter. So to prophesy, to be a prophet, to speak forth by divine inspiration, to predict. So it does include to predict. It can include to predict, but it also includes interpreting. So that's that reading of the Bible. The reading of the text is dependent upon this spiritual awakening to allow you to figure out what you're actually reading. Uh, you also gives you the power to utter and declare what you see as true. And I tell you there's a tremendous power in that. To speak the truth to, to your enemy will change the dynamics. If you're speaking from that spiritual gift of enlightenment, and that's, that's very important, that's absolutely essential in understanding and in interacting with the world. That comes when you follow after charity. And again, charity is not just giving stuff away, it has to do with this love. And I I can talk about it and talk about it, but until you experience it, you're not going to really get it. You may get glimpses. You may look through a glass darkly and get an idea. And that's what we're trying to tell you is that charity is not just giving stuff away, but it may include giving stuff away. It does include laying down your life, your vanity, your pride, your arrogance. It does include those things. So he says, for he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. So, when he's saying prophesieth, he's not talking about the future. He's talking about, you know, when you talk to somebody and you say, you know, I think you have a problem with this. I think that you're not seeing this. I think that, you know, I've actually seen and even done occasionally, but I've seen it stronger in other people at times, where they go to talk to somebody who's almost a complete stranger and they know all kinds of stuff about them. They know they're having problems with their brother. They know they're having problems with... How do they know that? You know, or they know they have problems with their health in a particular area of their health. You know, like I said before, I know people who can just touch you and they will feel your pain. They will know where you have a pain. Because they will feel the pain. They're that empathetic. And your pain will go away, but then they will feel the pain. And if they are full of that charity, that forgiveness, that humility, their pain will go from them as well, and you will be healed. Seemingly healed. But unless you change, the problem will come back. So... Why do you have this health issue? Why, why has this, uh, has your body strayed from the natural course of things and you've developed cancer or some other sort of pain or malady? There's usually a, in a spiritual and emotional cause for these things. Now I'm not saying that it was because of sin, although in a way, remotely it could be because of sin. But it's not... God isn't sending you disease to punish you. He's, these things come about to awaken you. Pain is a gift. If you didn't feel pain, you wouldn't realize the stove is hot and take your hand away. And if you receive that gift of God with the spirit of Christ and the spirit of confession and the spirit of humility... The pain can actually help heal you. But anyway, back to this where he's talking about the prophesied speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. Evidently, there was some sort of a problem with some people speaking in tongues at that time in Corinth. And he's warning the people that it's better to desire the spiritual gift of prophecy rather than speaking in tongues. I knew somebody who who wanted to speak in tongues. He was going to a church, wanted to speak in tongues, and it was really bothering them. If he didn't, he was eventually kicked out of the church because he kept asking too many questions. But much of the speaking in tongues in that particular church was fake. It was a fraud. It was not really speaking in tongues. And we'll talk more about that because this whole chapter is dealing with this issue of speaking in tongues. Especially unknown tongues. He says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. So what does he talk about? Interpret. Well when the apostles came out in the spoken tongues, where we see really for the first time the speaking in tongues, that Jerusalem was filled with people from all sorts of different countries and languages, because it happened to be at at Pentecost, a feast, 50 days after the Passover. So a lot of people had come there for a convocation. And a lot of them that had come had heard about Christ, And they were curious in the message of Christ because that had been spreading all the way to Rome already. But they spoke different languages. Yet they heard the apostles speaking their tongue, even though the apostles didn't know their tongue. That's the original speaking in tongues. Where people actually were being prophesied to it. In other words, interpreting the message of God from the beginning to these people in a new way. And you can go and read some of the things they said in Acts, but you won't understand it unless you realize that Jesus had taken the kingdom away from the Pharisees, had become the king of Judea, but was the righteous king of peace, not force, and was showing the people how to have a system of self-government that operated by faith, hope, and charity instead of force, fear, and violence. So they were explaining that to people who spoke different languages, but they heard it in their own tongue. Now, I know of people who have done this. or It's been claimed that they've done this. Where they were speaking to somebody on an airplane, and they didn't know French, but the person next to them on on the airplane only spoke French or very little English. And they found themselves speaking to the person in French. And they were shocked at this. But they were bringing forth a message about the gospel that is not common in the church that they went to. And they were kinda a little bit ostracized in that church and maybe eventually kicked out of that church. But they were beginning to awaken to some of these things and they were speaking supposedly in another language. Now I wasn't there, but this is a report that came to me. But this is a modern event of speaking in tongues. But he's talking about that kind of speaking in tongues. And where there's somebody that understands the language. He's, he's concerned about those people who speak at these unknown languages. So he goes on in verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge. Or by prophesying. Now that knowledge has to do with understanding. And that revelation. It has to do with, you know, Christ saying, I'm gonna build my church on this rock of revelation. Not on Peter, the guy, Cephas, the guy, but on the rock of revelation, this divine inspiration. That's what he was, so he says, I shall, except I shall speak to you, Either by revelation or my personal understanding, spiritual understanding, by prophesying, or by doctrine. Doctrine, whose doctrine? The doctrines of Jesus Christ. Beware of the church that has doctrines that are not based and rooted in what Jesus said. And even things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds. How shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So now he's talking about musical instruments and everything. This is where you see Paul drifting back and forth between the metaphor and the reality. Now, I'm sure they had you know, wind instruments and string instruments in those days and occasionally played music at church. But church was to the social welfare of the people, the daily ministration of the people. This was life and death. The music is incidental to that. You don't go to church for the music. You go to church to learn the harmony of Christ which is the song of the Lamb and the, and the song of Moses. And that is a system of government that operates by charity and a voluntary network of people who have come together as interested in the freedom and liberty of their neighbor as they are in their own. If that's not what your church is doing, your church is not the church established by Jesus Christ. So he he talks about this piped or harped. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? What is the battle? The battle is to see the truth, to receive the truth, to act upon the truth when Christ is the truth. So likewise, ye accept, ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood How shall it be known what is spoken, for ye shall speak into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto that speaketh a barbarian. And he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Now, why is the reference to bar- barbarian? Paul's talking about the people who are speaking in voices that nobody understands. No, it isn't a language. He's, he's very concerned that people are just speaking to the air. That this is gibberish and nonsense. And he makes reference to the barbarian. Well, he ends up going out and preaching to the other Gentiles who are the barbarians. So why is he mentioning barbarian? The word barbarian, it comes out of the uh, Latin. They called them barbarians because of their language. They didn't know what they were saying. They didn't understand their language. And so they said, the word barbarian is like saying the word babble bar 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 that's the way they would imitate the germans the Teutons bar 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 and they they became known as barbarians and you you know we have the word babylonian today but we also have the word babel and so to them that language was babel gibberish and so he says, I shall be unto him that speaketh gibberish. And he that speaketh shall be a like gibberish unto me, because I don't understand what he's saying. So a person speaking in tongues, what's he doing if nobody understands what he's saying? He's just edifying himself. He's just putting himself up. If there isn't revelation, if there isn't understanding... And so you're just going to have to decide that. Even so, ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Now, edifying of the church. The word church there, again, is the called out. Edifying of the called out. Who's he writing to? Paul's writing to the saints. He's writing to those that are separated out from the world. The apostles were separated out from the world. They had, they owned all things common. They were rightly dividing the bread from house to house to the people in free assemblies. The people in free assemblies were not the church. When you see, they didn't have that concept. I mean, the church in the wilderness was the Levites. It wasn't all of Israel. Israel was gathered in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, ten fifties, hundreds, and thousands. But they were in free assemblies, making free will offerings so that the Levites could rightly divide the bread from house to house to take care and serve the tents of the congregation, the tabernacles of the congregation. That's what the Levites were doing and that's what the early church was doing. So he says, he talks about these spiritual gifts, seek ye may excel to the edifying of these Saints, the the church, this called out group, so that it could do what? Provide the daily administration for the people in faith, hope, and charity. Anybody who became a Christian could not go to their government for free bread because their the governments of the world, the free bread they offered, were compelled offerings provided by forcing people to contribute. Early Christians would not do this. This is why they were persecuted. This was the conflict of Christianity. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. To be unfruitful, that's a big statement by Paul. Because the kingdom was taken away from the Pharisees because they were not bearing fruit and was going to give into another group that would bear fruit. Today, the modern church, there's some churches that speak in tongues. They have everybody in there speaking in tongues. But they're not bearing fruit. If they have a need in that church, I know several that I can think of. If they have a need in that church for somebody who doesn't have enough, maybe they're ill or sick or whatever, what do they do? They send them to the men who exercise authority. Those men call themselves benefactors, but they exercise authority, taking from your neighbor to provide you with benefits. Taking from the future of your children, because they all borrow money now, to provide those benefits. Those churches send their congregations to the men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority. Their table is a snare. Their table is filled with the wages of unrighteousness because they're all provided by force, not by charity. They are the antithesis of charity. And yet, they say they are the church established by Christ. But they're doing the exact opposite of what Christ said. Now, to me, this is a no-brainer. To some of you may be hearing this for the first time. So some of you have been hearing it for quite some time and I have to ask why are you, are you sitting down in the tens, hundreds and thousands providing free bread to the needy of your society through faith, hope and charity or are you waiting for something? Because the time for excuses is over. You need to gather in the tens, hundreds and thousands and put your faith and the knowledge that you have been given by God hopefully into practice you need to make that happen otherwise you may be counted as unfruitful too it's not enough to know that Jesus is who Jesus is that he is the Christ you must act upon that and do what he commanded which was to sit down in the tens hundreds and thousands tens, fifties, hundreds and thousands there's a reason why the fifties there because there were 5,000 people when he commanded it. 5,000 families when he commanded it. 5,000 men and their families. So there may maybe twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 people. And they had to all organize in these groups of ten. Or there would be no loaves and fishes. So you you need to do the same and need to understand that you need to do the same. So this next paragraph, which I call Admonishing the Wicked... So this is right in, in line with what he's been talking about. Actually, well, I jumped a, jumped a paragraph here. <laughs> the next paragraph is understanding. Cause he was in uh, the, the unfruitful. Talk about the unfruitful who are doing this gibberish thing. Tongues. And not really understanding. And we know they're not really understanding because they're not really doing what Christ said to do. They're actually doing the opposite of what Christ is said to do. And they don't even know it. They're blind to the fact that they're not... You know, you point this out and you get the deer in the headlight looks. You know, like, what? What? <laughs> yeah, you, you're sending your congregation to the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority who are the fathers of the earth, and you're saying, you need something, pray to them. They'll give you the stuff you need. We're just here to make you feel good about it on the weekends. Boy, you know, that's huge. But will anybody understand that? But anyway, the next paragraph uh, in this chapter 13, which is verse 15, which I entitle Understanding, What is it then? So, this is in reference to what he's just said. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room... Of the unlearned say, Amen, at thy giving thanks, that's the word Eucharisto, seeing he understandeth not what you saith. So he's saying that these, not only these, he's not only talking about the bar, bar, bar gibberish of people speaking in tongues. But he's talking about this whole idea of false religion which is unfruitful. Now, he's talking to Corinthians who are doing a lot of things right. I'm not When I'm talking about a lot of the modern church, they're doing very few things right. You know, they have a little token charity, but that, you know, like I say, token charity, where most of the charity, the vast, if 51% of the needs, the charitable needs of the people in your church are met, by men who exercise authority one over the other you're going in the wrong direction your church is in apostasy in actuality it's like 80, 90, 95% in some cases 99% of the charity in your congregations in your churches your Methodist, your Lutheran your Jehovah Witnesses your Episcopalian your Catholics of the charity that goes on in there to take care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society are all provided by men who exercise authority. That's how far away, that is how diluted the modern church has become. And they're not going to get back by speaking gibberish. They're only going to get back by repentance. So he talks about when he sings, he sings with understanding because Paul was learning the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The Corinthians were learning that same song. Modern church has a lot to learn about that song and what that means. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say Amen at thy giving of thanks, thy thanksgiving. So anyway, we're going to continue with verse 17 when we come back to keys of the kingdom. But chew on this so that understanding may come to you. Be willing to see the truth so that you may be awakened to the truth. Well, welcome back. So we're in Corinthians 13. And we're down in the paragraph that uh, starts with what is it then? So you know he's getting into this explanation. So we see in verse 17, he says, for thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. So what is he, who's the other? Well, he just was talking about the unlearned saying amen because the fact that you're speaking. But are you speaking from the Holy Spirit? Or is the Spirit of God actually speaking through you? Or are you just edifying yourself with gibberish? Whether that gibberish be speaking in tongues or just false doctrine. You're actually speaking what sounds. Everybody understands the words. But is it speaking from the Spirit? It says, I thank my God. Again, that's that word, Eucharist. I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with understanding, with my understanding, that by my voice, I might teach others also, rather than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. And so he's still talking about this problem that's showing up in Corinth. Everybody's out there speaking in tongues. And they're getting all worked up. See, they're having the same problem. Uh, of course, just farther along in the gospel, the original problem was everybody was sitting around making up excuses why they weren't going to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And finally, people started sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. The church was established. It was taking care of things, faith, hope, and charity. And so instead of belonging to the temple of roma or the temple of jerusalem that the pharisees had set up you now belong to christianity and so therefore you would pay into that what you should pay in based on what your income was your tribute would go into that for your welfare and they would rightly divide the bread from house to house now you could Join any one of these systems that were around in Corinth and were around in Ephesus and were around in Rome. And they were all, you know, a lot of them were connected to the temple at Ephesus. And this was the social welfare of the day where the free bread came from. Or you could join with the Christians. But the Christians had a different, they didn't operate by force. They operated by charity those that had shared with those that did not have enough. This is a different kind of group and with a different kind of spirit at its core. Now, the Christians were eventually persecuted because they left the temples, including some of the big contributors, left the temples of the state-sponsored religion and joined this religion of Christ, which was legitimized by Pontius Pilate, was legitimized by the people who hailed Jesus as the highest son of David, was even legitimized by uh, many of the people who had been a part of the Sanhedrin and had left about that time, probably under John the Baptist, and said that the existing Sanhedrin that was headed by different sons of Ananias and eventually by his son in law Caiaphas was a fake Sanhedrin, was a false government. You know, kinda like the the government of Oregon right now, where eighty percent of them are in violation of the Oregon constitution and by the Constitution are commanded to vacate the office. But they're all still there passing laws. <laughs> And the people are sitting there like, well, well, should we recall them? Or they don't know what to do. You know, go read our article in Article 2, Section 22, just to show you, because we're not interested in that government. We're interested in God's government. But we're showing you how 80% of them can be felons in violation of their own Constitution. They're sworn to keep. And they still sit in office voting to tell you what you're supposed to do, and they won't even do what you told them to do that makes their offices literally illegitimate that they're, they're they're not the actual lawful government of Oregon, you know which is you know the state of Oregon. They don't even keep their own rules. Well, the same thing was happening with the Sanhedrin and a vast exodus of members of the sanhedrin. Got up and walked out, you can go read our article on Sanhedrin, right about the time of John the Baptist, probably, uh, uh, at the same time as John the Baptist, and John the Baptist literally was removing the laver from that temple to the wilderness. And so the baptism of John was the legitimate uh, Judaic baptism and it was he was saying, "We're not going to do it by force like the Pharisees do it. We're going to do it through charity. If if you have two coats and your neighbor doesn't have any, we're going to share. We're going to do the same in meats." This was the beginning of the gospel. I would love to see those Lutherans, Baptists, Episcopalians, <laughs> Jehovah Witnesses, Catholics, and all the rest of them say the same thing that John the Baptist was saying. But they might have to repent and leave their false religion and their public religion and start sitting down and taking care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity. But evidently they don't. Well, Paul's talking to people who are actually starting to do that. They're actually starting. They've already gone past this inactivity of not being part. They've repented And started thinking it another way, but other things were creeping in, like speaking in unknown tongues. And he's warning against that. That he would rather speak five words of understanding than ten thousand in an unknown tongue. He says, brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice ye be children but in understanding be men so how be it in malice i mean what what is that word malice that that actually is uh, i think I, in the greek it's uh, i've got to look it up er kakia i had it right okay uh it's also translated uh, maliciousness evil wickedness even naughtiness and it means uh malign malignity, malice, ill will, desire, or injury. So he's actually accusing some of these people who are speaking in these unknown tongues as being malicious because they're not focusing on understanding. They're like little children. And that you have to put away, you know, he talks about that, putting away the things as of a child and start being real men. And that's really, I see a movement Besides all the, the unhinged, uh, uh, craziness of the world, I see there's a movement of the world talking about individual responsibility. And one thing Christianity is about is individual responsibility. But Christianity adds something extra. Not only make your bed, <laughs> take care of your family, get your own act together, But care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. Well, you cannot efficiently do that unless you sit down and attend hundreds and thousands, which is why Christ commanded that his disciples make the people do that. And that's what they were doing in Corinth. But other things were still creeping in and they had to... And this is where he's in his rebuking mode to try to get people to see what they have failed to see. And not be subject to this; these people that are edifying themselves with speaking gibberish. And they're not the only problem. But in verse 21, we see them. In the law it is written with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that will they not hear me saith the Lord, wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Not prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but to them which believe. So, do you believe? Believe what? If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues and there comes in those that are unlearned or unbelievers will they not say that ye are mad? And of course that's what they said at the beginning of Acts. They said, "Are these guys drunk. And uh, because they were speaking in other tongues. Well, there were people in the crowd that could understand them. And so they were not drunk. <laughs> they were they were actually alive with the Holy Spirit. But if all prophecy and there came in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all. He is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. In other words, if you're speaking in tongues, there needs to be somebody there that's hearing what you're saying and understanding. And you see the effect that he's beginning to repent because he is what? Coming face to face with the truth about himself. Are you coming face to face with the truth about yourself and your sloth? because the slothful shall be under tribute. In the na- next paragraph, we, which I call the author of confusion, we see how is it then, brethren, when? because this is a continuation, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, have a doctrine, have a tongue, have a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. People always have their, you know, now that shows you it was a little bit different kind of church meeting because everybody came with their own song, their own song. Uh you know, But we see that in a local gathering here in this uh, isolated valley. People gather in the restaurant because somebody has locked us out of the church, which used to be a kind of a community church. It was had a denomination at one time, but somebody bought it, and then they were going to have everybody come, but then they didn't, wanted to, it was a woman who wanted to dictate to everybody how they should think and act and be, and so she ended up closing the church, and so everybody goes down and meeting in the restaurant. <laughs> so anyway, but they have a point where they they like to sing at the beginning of the, the church, and they have requests. People say, oh, I like this song, or I like that song. So he's talking about that kind of thing, where everybody has a song they want to sing. Uh, but then they all, he also goes on to say that they have a doctrine, some teaching that they want to talk about. I've seen this in uh, some of the uh, uh, Quaker churches, because they don't have somebody up necessarily behind a pulpit. Anybody can stand up and bear witness. So everybody, you know, they can have something, you know. And we have that point, too, where we have these conversations where somebody can bring up something that they want to talk about or they want to share or whatever in relationship to doctrine. But then he says, hath a tongue. Well, I know some churches that do that where people just start speaking in tongues, unknown tongues. And, you know, my kids have gone to those churches and sat in on it. And they kind of were a little creeped out by it. Like, what the heck is going on with this? Nobody... I used to have a friend, uh, old guy, very bold guy, uh, the man of time, I refer to him as. And, uh, he's passed away. But he would go into a church and, uh, he would sp- start speaking in tongues. And he'd be a first time visitor there. And somebody would in, you know, a lot of churches do this where somebody's speaking in this unknown tongue, somebody else gets up and interprets what he's saying. And they just keep going on in their un, unknown tongue. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about. There needs to be somebody who understands what they're saying. And the guy gets up and says, oh, he's saying this and you know, explaining what, and everybody's getting all worked up because this is you know, supposed to be the Holy Spirit and everything. And finally, uh, the man of time announces that I don't know what this guy's talking about because I just made up this gibberish he was really good at it <laughs> it sounded authentic uh, you know as authentic as authentic goes if you easily fooled by those things but uh he says you better check this guy out because I was just talking gibberish and he's standing up interpreting that gibberish you know of course he would immediately get thrown out because he kind of burst their bubble but uh Paul is talking about the people, everybody hath a tongue, hath a revelation, have an interpretation of the Bible. He says, let all things be done unto edifying, not yourself, but others. Are you actually helping somebody? Well, of course, now he's talking to people in Corinth who are actually providing all the social welfare for the people in Corinth who are in these free assemblies. So they're actually physically helping people, like giving up money to help other people, giving up food to help other people. That's that charity that is of things. But he's talking about edifying them spiritually. That's the charity that Paul was talking about several chapters earlier. It's not just giving away things. It's giving things at times, but in a way that edifies, that strengthens the people. So if you have this doctrine or this tongue or this revelation or interpretation, is it edifying anybody? Is your charity edifying people, strengthening the poor? If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three and that by course and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three and let the others judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace, for ye May all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And there's that word, saints. I should make that a link so you can go find out what that word is because I improved on the article we have on what a saint is. It's a particular term. It's not like when we say the word saints today, we have preconceived notion based on the way people think of that word. It meant something different back then than what we often are thinking when we hear the word today. But he's making it very clear that everybody in the congregation may judge your... Your prophecy, which is not prophecy of the future, it's prophecy or understanding, where you're explaining the depth of what is going on. We have a, a vast network of people, well, it reaches a lot of places, it's not a lot of people. And those people, need when they hear these programs, they can come back and say, you know, well, what about this? Or ask questions, or question what I say. And that's how I get books written, It's answering those questions. And so we're open to that. And, you know, I'm not trying to dictate to you. I'm just sharing what the Spirit is giving me. But now it comes to a very controversial section, which I classify the or, or entitle the virtuous woman. And it says, let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Now, he was just talking about everybody keeping quiet. If what they're saying is not edifying everybody else, he was talking about people with doctrines, people with songs, people with, with, uh, you know, different interpretations, that they should keep quiet if, you know, this, this is not really of God. And if they speak, everybody has the right to judge what they're saying. This could lead to a lot of arguments, you know. But of course, everybody, there's freedom of speech in the kingdom of God. But in that's challenging one another, you know, and that's important. But men, you have to understand the dynamics of the family. This this little paragraph, little tiny paragraph, is this an anecdote to what he was really trying to say? And people create whole doctrines. That women are to keep quiet in church. And women are vessels of the Holy Spirit as much. And I have a few links there where you can go and look some of my comments up about that. He's just talking, he was talking about people speaking in tongues, keeping silent. Does this let your women keep silent in the church has to do with women speaking tongues? Because he just did several paragraphs about speaking tongues. And, and, even other interpretations and other doctrines and bringing it forth, their husbands should be standing up bringing these doctrines if there's a question about doctrine or teachings or understanding. If a woman brings it up, are men supposed to shout down that woman and argue with that woman and, and battle with that woman? She's somebody else's wife. So it was a different dynamic, social dynamic of the family in those days. It isn't that women can't bring the Holy Spirit in and that they can't say anything. Like I said, for several paragraphs, he's talking about speaking in tongues and unknown languages. And then he says, women are to keep quiet. How many of you, when you've heard this, let your women keep silent in the church, Ever did they ever take that verse and tell you that, well, Paul had been talking about speaking in tongues? And that's what he meant by silence? that they're not supposed to be speaking in tongues in in church unless there's other people. I mean, there were women who prophesied. We know right away in the first century church, young girls who prophesied. But I'm sure their father was there. And they shared what the Holy Spirit was putting on their hearts. And everybody looked at it and decided that this was true. Not because young girls said it, but because they were consulting the Holy Spirit in their own hearts and minds. And hopefully your arguments in church are based in the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, if you were to get the Holy Spirit actually in your church, the Holy Spirit would be the dominant spirit. But right now, we see a lot of confusion in the churches. And what most people have solved this confusion by simply Forty thousand different denominations, so that and and you can go to this church if you don't like what's going on. You can just go to another church or go to another church or go to another church. And but who's going to Christ? Who's going to the Holy Spirit? So this this whole doctor about women keeping silent in church, and of course I gave you a little story just earlier in this where a woman bought the, the local church and then tried to dictate to everybody. But it, it's it's a common spirit, and we see it showing up in, in Corinth to some degree. Again, I think that Paul's talking about women speaking in tongues here, or maybe even bringing in doctrines and, and that, because he did make some reference to that. But that's what this whole section has been about. And even he goes on in the next chapter, which will, uh, not the next chapter, but the next paragraph, and talks about the, a similar thing but she wanted to dictate to everybody else we had a there had been a it was just a community church and non-denominational and lots of people came there we even had a preacher come from another valley because there was no local preacher and everything we just had use to the building because we kept it up and the, the church had to, it was i think episcopalians who had owned it at one time and they were they didn't have a minister there, but they let us use the building if we would pay the insurance on the building. So we got the use of the building. You know, there's only maybe a hundred people in our whole community if you reach way out for miles and miles and try to count everybody. So we'd end up with 20, 30, maybe 50 people in the church at the most. But they would would have these other pastors come in and speak and and we had one that was coming that some of the men thought was doing bad things and abusing his position there and of course a woman interfered right away when she heard the men were going to have a meeting and there's a big long story about that but then then the church kind of broke up nobody started coming and they finally decided they had to do something because some woman had had got involved and so they all the people had a meeting we all got there bound around a big table and and uh, it's kind of a funny story where the so they we decided we were going to come back I mean there's a lot to the story a lot of drama to it but uh but this one instance where they were deciding well we think we ought the women said we would like to start a women's bible study and so it went all the way around the table as our custom and everybody got to say their piece and and uh, the women all spoke up. The men kept quiet about the women's Bible study. And then somebody said, well, we ought to have a men's Bible study too. And so it went all the way around. And every woman almost spoke up and said what the men should do and not do at the men's Bible study. <laughs> and finally it got to me. And I said, I got an original idea. Why don't we let the men decide what the men do at the men's Bible study? (laughs) And I I got a lot of laughter and chuckles from the ladies as well as the men. But that was the interesting thing, is that the women all had an opinion about what we were supposed to have at the men's Bible study. But uh, the story even gets worse. Uh, but, uh, we'll finish up with this paragraph here, uh, when we come back and maybe if we have time, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll reveal to you some of the other things that I learned in this whole process of dealing with people in congregations. But, the last paragraph is decently and in order and then we'll start with chapter 15. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, I Actually, during the break, I added the links to the, the page that I mentioned as we were going, and we have this one more paragraph that we're going to look at, which is, and I can see why they would break, If the idea of breaking things up into chapters is great, the same as the idea of breaking things up into paragraphs is great, Uh A lot of those paragraphs and none of those chapters are revealed in the actual original scripts. They didn't have that. So, but in order to find your way around, we can break these things up. But like I said, you know, like when people are all talking about women keeping quiet in church, nobody tells you that the previous four or five paragraphs were all about speaking in tongues and that people should be silent if there was no interpreter and everything. And this wasn't uh you know this this whole emphasis on this doctrine of silencing women you know is is kind of crazy, and of course, now we have women who are preachers and ministers and so the question is, are they edifying the gospel? Well, most of the men ministers I know aren't edifying the gospel, and they're certainly not edifying the people. They're weakening the people. They're causing the people to be farther away from the basics of the gospel of the kingdom and farther away from living by faith, hope, and charity. And they live entirely by force, fear, and violence and take care of all their widows and orphans and their elderly by force, fear, and violence and men who call themselves benefactors, all of which Christ forbid... So, I'm not going to pick on the fact that there are a few women preachers out there. I just want to know, are they edifying? And, of course, that's what what Paul is bringing things back to. And as we see in verse 36, just after he makes this statement about women, you know, taking too much control in the church and and trying to run things, which is a, a natural tendency... Uh, And and we have to guard against it. Not that there's anything wrong with a woman. If the Holy Spirit is in her, that's what should be running the church, is the Holy Spirit. And all the people that bring in doctrines or tongues or whatever it is they bring in need to be tested. Test that Holy Spirit. Is that really the Holy Spirit bringing forth this doctrine? Because the early church was driven by the Holy Spirit through the elders. It was elder driven. If the Holy Spirit is not within the elder, then the elder is not going to bring that communion of the Holy Spirit into the congregation. And uh, anybody, if, if five people, six people, seven uh, elders in your congregation are not filled with the Holy Spirit, and one or two are, or two or three are, they will control that congregation. Uh, and of course, I say congregation, it's just a free assembly. So control, no, they're not going to rule over it. But the presence of the Holy Spirit in them will edify at that congregation. Many people will drop away, but that's on their heads. If they drop away because you're rude and insipid and all these other things are bossy, that's another thing. If they drop away because you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's not your fault. That's, that's just the process taking place. Now, of course, the vain man will think that it was the Holy Spirit that drove them away. <laughs> but, but uh, the humble man is not interested in driving people away. He's interested in, in being cherished and loving to one another, not driving people away. So anyway, in verse 36, he says, What? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So I'm not, I would think that forbid not to speak in tongues, when he just said so much bad stuff about people who speak in tongues, no edification, he's still saying forbid not. So I would say also forbid not women to speak in the church if they are not being, speaking because if you did then those young girls who prophesied this coming of the dearth that we see earlier in the epistles they would not have spoke up but they did speak up now maybe they told their father and their father went and brought it to the church but he probably said let let them say what it is that they has been revealed to them that's what I would have done and so they did get to speak. But they were, you know, in the household of their father or in the household of their husband. And so they were sharing what they knew. They weren't trying to rule over the church or regulate or dominate. Uh They were doing in an orderly, decently and in an orderly fashion. So he's explaining this chapter is not a separate chapter. It's all part of the same letter. And he's explaining how those all works together. And on my comment side, you know, I, I point out in verses 14 to 1 through 5, according to Matthew Henry's concise commentary, prophesying, that is explaining scripture, explaining the gospel. That's prophesying. It's not always talking about the future. It's understanding what the gospel is all about. 1 Corinthians 14, 6-11. Uh, Tongues not understood, like indistinct musical sounds, are of no service to the hearers. Again, that's from another biblical commentary. And uh, I also have a quote here on uh, 14, in verses 12-20. All gifts should be referred to edification by B.E about edification if you if you have a doctor and you have any of these things are you edifying uh, so anyway I also have several questions why did Paul say let your women keep silence well this is all in relationship to the speaking of tongues and bringing in strange doctrines etc that they should bring this forth through their husbands so that uh, debate can take place you know in an orderly fashion not constantly to create arguments, but in an orderly fashion so that everybody is exploring the ideas to find out, is this really in conformity to Christ? Is this really edifying our group? Or is somebody trying to justify some false ideas in their own life? And, of course, we see in Corinthians where Paul is, addresses some of those same issues. But I have links to other articles on women so you can understand that. Should you test strange tongues? Yes, absolutely. Why are, uh, Who are the workers of iniquity and where is a virtuous woman? Well, a virtuous man or a virtuous woman is dependent upon the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within them. And that's, that's basically what that whole chapter is about and how people can be distracted by what they think is spiritual and is not really all that spiritual. So anyway, chapter 15, he starts off, moreover, brethren, declare unto you the gospel. I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have Believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So he's, now he's talking about a particular subject that he's going to get into. And, uh, because you can clearly see in, in chapter 14 that he was finishing up that talk on, on, uh, um, these things like tongues and, and other things that are coming in that are, are creating an emotionalism within the church, but are really not edifying anybody, not doing any good. So if you're not really edifying the church, he says, you know, the saints, edifying the saints, you're not really helping them with their actual job of a daily ministration through faith, hope, and charity, which is a way of preaching in itself, then keep quiet. You know, you're not doing anybody good, you know. You want to go speak gibberish, go do it out there on the street somewhere. That's not, cause it's a distraction. It's keeping people away from what where we're really supposed to be going. And so now he starts talking about moreover, brethren. So that even that word moreover is tying everything that he's been saying earlier in the letter. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. He preached Christ first, and so he's going to get into another section that is very controversial here. And so he's setting them up to be ready for that. So in verse 5 he says, And that he was seen of Cephas, which some people say is another word for the 12 apostles, uh, the Peter of the 12 apostles, then of the 12. After that he was seen above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some all fallen us." Uh, some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, the charis of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, do we preach and so ye believed so he's talking about his work he's talking about how he was this apostle that he is preaching about Christ coming you know Jesus came became the Christ the anointed the Messiah the king of Judea he died because of our sins what was our sin well we had tried to do this through the Pharisees by force and by controlling one another, and by uh, manipulating. But John the Baptist said, no, no more by force. Do it by faith, in charity, and in hope. And so he started this other gospel. And that's what, when he's talking about preaching Christ first, he's talking about the message of Christ, according to the scriptures. To live by love instead of by force do not depend on the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority, but depend upon love for one another. So, and that he died and thereby anointing his throne in blood, rose again, was the king of Judea. The apostles came out and say there is another king We're going to do it the way Christ said to do it, the way Moses said to do it. And in that process, learn the song of Moses and the Lamb. Of how to live in a free society through faith, hope, and charity. Modern Christians aren't learning that. Modern Christians are having their ears tickled in their local churches. So now Paul gets into what is going to, again, he's constantly going back and forth. Uh, because it's the way he explains these things that Cephas, Peter, said were going to be difficult to understand. He goes back and forth between the actual physical and, and the, the metaphor that is trying to talk to you about spiritual things that are hard to understand. So he says... Now in verse twelve. Now, if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some amongst you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and in, and your faith is also vain. Your allegiance is also vain. Faith in what? Christ? Christ, anointed, Messiah, King. Every time he's saying Christ, he's saying King, Messiah. Because these people have separated themselves out from the government welfare systems of the world and are now in the government welfare system of Christ, which operates by faith, open charity and the perfect law of liberty. They're not like a lot of modern Christians who... Are just faking it on Sunday, while all the rest of the week they follow after Caesar, and look for his benefits, even though his benefits come to them by way of force, and compel offerings, which, going way back to David and Saul, Saul's first compelled offering, where he forced the sacrifice of the people to provide for his military support of Israel, was called foolish. And that his kingdom would not stand. None of these kingdoms will stand. As long as they go the way of force instead of the way of righteousness. There is a slight awakening in America of people starting to say that, you know, we need to take responsibility for ourselves to be a great nation again. We need to take care of one another in order to be a great nation again. Now, very little of the conservative movement gets actually into the depth that Christ gets into, but at least there's a little bit of a stirring in that area. And, of course, there's a, a, a reaction to that that's vehemently, violently against them. I mean, these are the people that would burn real Christians if they knew what a real Christian was because they hate the idea of individual responsibility and charity. They like taking, eating of one another, cannibalizing one another, biting one another, forcing their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. They love that, and and you'll hear them gnashing their teeth if you say anything to the contrary. So in in verse fourteen, as he says, and if Christ be not risen, then as our preaching vain is your. Allegiance to that Christ also vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up? If so, be that the dead rise not for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith, your allegiance is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. You see how he repeats that? That is common Jewish literature to say the same thing twice in a slightly different way. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. So, he's he's talking about, that evidently in Corinth there was some doubt as to life after death. And that was a big debate even before Christ came. You know, the Sadducees didn't see that there was any kind of life after death. And the Pharisees had their opinion and... There was lots of different versions. I mean, many, probably most uh, people in the Jewish religion at that time who did believe in a life after death, most of them also believed in reincarnation. And now Christ, you know, I mean, people even thought that Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist, which is an interesting point because obviously they were born within months of each other. So how was that possible? But the... If you understand a lot of the philosophy about that, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying that this is what a lot of people were thinking in those days. Now, we have an orthodox Christianity today, but was that created by Christ or was it created by men for their own purposes and power? So anyway, in the next... But we'll discuss that at another time and probably already have. But the next uh, paragraph starts at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits afterwards that they are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Now, I want to break it right here at the verse 25. Again, you see him repeating the same thing almost in a slightly different way. Because he's trying, whenever he's doing that, he's trying to tell you something spiritual. He's walking around a physical set of circumstances or ideas to tell you something that is spiritually fruitful. Because he just gave you a big long chapter on if it doesn't edify, if it doesn't bring us closer to the Holy Spirit, it's not important. You know, a lot of people want to believe in the resurrection because they want to think that, you know, I'm not, they, they fear death so much. We, we should not fear death. We should fear not leave, living life according to the way of Christ. That's what we should fear. <laughs> not, not fearing death. We all face death. So, what's he trying to tell us? What, how is he trying to edify our Holy Spirit? By getting into this whole resurrection thing. Is he trying to make us tickle our ears and think, Oh, you're all saved, you'll all be resurrected, you'll all be with him in heaven and you'll all be happy someday so you can just chill out. No, that's not the purpose of what he's trying to say. I'm not going to tell you the purpose yet. I may not tell you at all. But that's what you're trying to find out is what is the spiritual message of what he is saying. In verse 25, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You mean the last enemy is not the Democrats? You mean the last enemy is not the Russians? The last enemy is not the Turks? The last enemy is death. So here, how is death an enemy? This is back into that metaphor. You know, he's talking about, you know, resurrection is not necessarily our friend and any more than death is an actual enemy. These are, these are circumstances of life and circumstances of creation. And they're pointing to something that should edify your spirit, not comfort you falsely in the flesh. For he that hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected, accepted, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, and then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. And God may be all in all. Now, isn't that a set of repetitious statements that could actually confuse you if you are not used to the way in which the Hebrews were writing these things down? He's trying to talk to you about something spiritual. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Now here's he's getting into the spiritual message. Death is, is only our enemy because we do not die daily. <laughs> we do not lay down our life daily in sacrifice, one for the other. So therefore we fear death. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage it to me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. There's the message. Be not deceived. He's trying to talk to you about spiritual things. And we'll probably have to finish this <laughs> at another time. But he ends in verse 34, awake to righteousness. And that's where we'll leave it. Till next time on Keys of the Kingdom.